This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Deborah Levy, author of the novel The Man Who Saw Everything. I've always been really interested in the fact that snails can sleep for three years. I just thought I missed a trick with that. I discovered that when I'd finished the book. Like you could say, go to sleep in the snail goes to sleep in 1988, wakes up three years later, the boiler walls down, borders are open, everything's changed. We'll hear more from Deborah Levy in a few minutes. First, I want to invite you to be part of the First Draft community by becoming a member at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. I've heard that it takes listeners seven times to hear a pitch before becoming members, so I invite you to beat the odds. If this is one through six, or if it's seven or more, please consider how valuable your patronage is to this podcast. Your support keeps the essential voices of writers sharing their craft and their work over the airwaves. Membership starts at just $6 a month and includes perks like extra cuts from the interviews that don't make the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and perhaps best of all, pitch-free, ad-free episodes every single week. You will receive your own link to an ad-free, pitch-free first draft feed that you can play wherever you listen to podcasts. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters and join the First Draft family. Every month you get a newsletter and at random extra thank you gifts from me. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. I have an archive of more than 230 episodes, and I hope that from them you have learned something about craft and heard new and interesting perspectives about the world we live in and our human journey. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. I am committed to bringing you in-depth conversations with today's best writers of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and essays. And I also have a website now. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com. Stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on other episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Deborah Levy, British playwright, novelist, poet, and essayist. Her novel, Hot Milk, and short story collection, Swimming Home, were both shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. Her most recent novel, The Man Who Saw Everything, was longlisted for the Man Booker Prize this year. The main character of The Man Who Saw Everything is Saul Adler, who is a young historian invited to communist East Berlin to do research in 1988, just before the fall of communism and the Berlin Wall. Before Saul heads to East Germany, he has his girlfriend Jennifer take a photo of him walking on the same famous crosswalk that is featured on the cover of the Abbey Road album. He is bringing the photo as a gift for his translator's sister, who loves the Beatles. 
Just before he leaves England, Jennifer breaks up with him and he suffers a minor injury when he is struck by a car while staging the photo on the crosswalk. In East Berlin, Saul, who is known for his beauty, falls for his translator, Walter, and may have unwittingly put Walter and his family in danger. The novel continues in 2016 when Saul suffers another blow when again as a pedestrian he is struck on the same crosswalk. At the heart of the man who saw everything is Saul, who struggles to make sense of his life, his difficult family, and his bad choices. We began the discussion with Deborah Levy sharing what subjects obsess her as a writer. I think most writers follow their obsessions. Uh, It would be a really bad idea to start with something that bored you, right? For the man who saw everything, I was interested in the way history is told, our personal history, and um, the way that uh, history in its biggest sense is told, who gets left out of the story, uh, who's going to correct the story, And the inspiration, as much as the obsession, was the Abbey Road in London for the man who saw everything, the zebra crossing. Because I would sit there and I would sit on the wall outside EMI Studios and, um, and I'd watch tourists from all over the world fool around on the zebra being their favorite beetle. So if you were being Paul, you know, most of them took off their shoes because he walked barefoot across the zebra. John was a little bit more kind of diffident and cool and had his hands in his pockets. Um, and um, and I thought, yeah, they are enacting a, a, a bit of history. They're actually doing history. And it was quite a safe place to play. You know, the black and white stripes, where do they begin, where do they end? Because you can cross from both sides. So I'd sit on the wall, I'd think about that. Oh, where does this begin and end, this crossing? So the form of my novel was beginning to kind of, I was tickled by that. I thought, well, what if I had a novel in two parts, a bit like this crossing? You cross from the left, you can cross from the right, but everything flows into each other. Then I thought, well, how about putting my my leading man, my leading character, Saul Adler, uh, age 28, on this crossing, this famous crossing? Why is he there? Ah, he's probably going to have sex with his girlfriend. He needs to cross the road to meet Jennifer Moreau. Then I thought, no, I'm going to have her suggest to him that as he is going on a trip to East Germany, this is 1988, why doesn't she, she's a photographer, she's an art student, take a photo of him in the style of the Abbey Road cover, and he could give this to his translator sister, Luna, in East Berlin, because she's a big Beatles fan, and... That's what happens, except that he gets knocked over by a car. So all this, that kind of beginning of the book, happened in my mind. I was sort of turning it over, sitting on a wall, watching people cross that road. 
what do you think it was about 1988 East Germany that also interested you? I mean, I felt like from the book, you, you use the word specter that, that comes up a lot, that came up from a famous sure. speech. And I, I definitely sense an interest in the Holocaust and World War II. So how did you bring it to that? Yeah. Um, so 1988 in the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, as it was called, the wall's going to come down quite soon, right? So I wanted it to be, I kind of wanted the book to begin towards the end of the 20th century and begin somewhere in mid-21st. But I needed an authoritarian regime that was quite near us in history. It wasn't too far away. And Saul Adler, he has a very authoritarian father, so I'm looking at an authoritarian fatherland, as the GDR was called, and his own pop. And I needed 1988 because we were coming to the end of that regime. Not that Walter Muller, um, Saul Adler's translator, knows that yet, but we're coming to the end of it. Also happening in Britain... Um, is the, you know, is this debate about leaving the European Union and ending free movement. And the thing about the, the, I think that was sticking to me a bit. It, it, this is not a book about Brexit at all, but it's kind of there happening in the world. And when you write, it's a bit like you've got a sort of Velcro suit on and everything is sticking to it. So, the Berlin Wall was built, as you know, to actually stop people from leaving, not from coming in. And there is no citizen who's experienced no freedom of movement who would recommend it to you or me. So that was in the air too. And then just the, the visual spectacle of that wall with the amazing graffiti and painting on one side in the West and very gray in the east with rolls of barbed wire. So as a sort of visual marker of two sides of things. Same wall, one very bright and painted and people writing stuff on it and making pictures and, and the other side very bleak. So that, that kind of interested me too. What was the rationale for you that you wanted to put Saul into an authoritarian regime? And then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about his character. Saul is a minor historian, as he describes himself, right? And he is a, he he has struggled all his life with the kind of authoritarianism of his father. Saul isn't the man his father wants him to be. He's got a very rigid idea of masculinity, and Saul is much more fluid, and he is he's bisexual. He is a freakishly beautiful man. He's got intense blue eyes and black hair and high cheekbones. He's got rock star looks. Uh, he's not interested in the kind of toxic masculinity that his father wants to sort of bash him into shape uh, that way. So in a way, his father, Saul's father, is the wall that, that Saul needs to jump over and find his freedom from so the book sort of operates on, on, on that kind of level too. 
I love the image too. I don't know if you were thinking about this at all, but when you get to the zebra striped crossing, that every line is sort of like a wall. If you if you looked at it metaphorically, right. literally, yeah. and how many journeys we take as one person in our life. Yeah, so time is going to flow from 1988, which is when the book starts. Hands in 2016, Saul is 28 uh, when he first crosses the road. And he is 56, apparently, when he, he next crosses that road. So the book's about a man trying to cross a road for 30 years. Sometimes you can just start with that as an idea. And the stuff that happens is history. I've always been really interested in the fact that snails can sleep for three years. I just thought I missed a trick with that. I discovered that when I finished the book. Like you could say, go to sleep in, the snail goes to sleep in 1988, wakes up three years later, the boiling wall's down, borders are open, everything's changed. It's quite a good sort of historical device. Um, the snail, and, uh, and and I'm laughing because in my shed where I write, it's a dark, dusty shed built under an apple tree. I have a lot of books on insects and trees and herbs and and plants, and I find the ecology of um, all of that. So inspiring, actually. Um, But I missed a trick with the snail. Time is something that seems to be very interesting to you, both in The Cost of Living and in this novel. You, you, you are unfolding time in unique ways where it's, it's almost elliptical or, or mysterious how it blends together. And you, you said something in The Cost of Living. Um, you said, to unfold any number of ideas through all the dimensions of time is the great adventure of the writing life. Yeah, because as Heidegger told us, we're all beings in time. That's what we are. We are beings in time. And um, the thing is, we don't experience time uh, chronologically. And what I mean by that, just on a very basic everyday level, is, you know, you're sitting on the subway and you're thinking about yesterday. And then you might be making some plans for the future or you've got a wish for something to happen in the future. So you're sliding there. Or you are thinking about something from your childhood services. And so the past and the present and the future, not in a mystical way, are all happening simultaneously for all of us all the time. It's funny that that was the very, I think that was this, one of the second or first notes that I made. It was the very first note I made in your book when I got to page 32. Um, and I, I said she plays with time in this paragraph. You're in an apartment with a dog thinking about lunch with Jack. So this is a little scene where Saul is mm-hmm. um, he is thinking back and forth. He's oh, There's one little scene happening, and he's in that moment, but then you see him at a lunch with Jack and then something in the future. And when you're writing like this, does that all come out like that when you write? Well, I've got some ideas about why that's happening, right? Um, So in that scene with 
um, Saul and the dog. There's a kind of joke in there too because the firefighters are on strike and apparently there's smoke in the building. There might be a fire in the building and Saul volunteers to go and check out his his elderly neighbor's apartment. So you'd think there'd be some urgency. She might have left her heater on, she says. And you'd think that he'd be in there and out of there as quickly as possible. But no, he kind of looks around and he sees that nothing, no heater is on. And then he hears something moving and he turns around and there are these eyes staring at him. And it's a dog, it's a poodle. And he thinks, oh, okay, I, I want to sit down now and I want to stroke this dog. He and the dog start to breathe together, but there is some urgency because there's supposed to be a fire. And he begins to think about very small things, apparently, uh, meeting his friend Jack, and Jack being somebody who was greedy and who, who liked to pounce on any kind of food that was left over. He's a little bit mean. He's thinking about that, but hey, this apartment block's supposed to be on fire. So what's going on with Saul? Then the phone rings in his neighbor's flat and he picks it up and it's the voice of his son, Isaac. It's the first time that we are introduced right to the name Isaac. And we begin to realize later on in the book that Saul is going back and forth in his memory, isn't he? But everything that happens in time sort of happens Uh, for a reason. There's nothing mystical about it. Um, Part of the kind of technical difficulty of writing this book was to have simultaneous time flow into the work and not lose the story to keep the narrative going. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Just like craft-wise, how you blended all these times. I mean, very concretely in the book, you have 1988 and you have 2016. There are two sections of the book. It's very concrete. But how it all flows in in other ways seems like a technical marvel. And I was like, I wondered if you wrote one section first and the other section first or blended them or, or how your brain works if it was more webbed. I knew that I had to have a lot of incident in the first half that I could then develop and push further in the second half. So the structure of the book, it's a bit like a mirror with a crack down the middle and both sides of the mirror reflect each other. So that's what I mean when I say in 2016, you can see some of 1988 and vice versa. So then the pleasure of the book is really going with Saul as a character, going with how his mind is behaving. So apparently he's been knocked down twice, twice, okay? So the reader can decide whether it's once or twice. I have an idea, but I'm not saying because I don't think writers should wrap every single thread of mystery up and tied and, and 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 delivered. I don't think, I don't think the human mind really wants to work like that, and I don't think life is like that. So, um, I am following Saul as a character. I'm, I'm the way his mind's behaving. I'm having people interrupt his telling of of history. 
because um, this is told in the first person from Saul's point of view. And that first person voice can get a little bit claustrophobic, right? So I've got to find techniques to let other subjectivities in. Um, Jennifer Moreau, Jack, Walter Muller, Luna. It's a book full of people, full of characters who pick up the stories that that Saul Adler has either repressed or is unable to tell to himself or has just forgotten. The the very concreteness of the story, the plot in 1988, when is that Saul goes to East Germany, he has a relationship with his translator, Walter, and his sister. He's staying with his sister and mother. And he's there to study, sort of tyrannical. His subject is the psychology of male tyrants. But he's there to write, actually, um, a paper on the realities of economic life in the GDR. And he, uh, Walter Muller, sort of really desires um, Saul and we learn later that he also has to spy on, on Saul because that was 1988 in East Berlin. So I'm looking at, you know, Walter, we're talking about the gaze there, right? He's called the man who saw everything. So a question might be, is the man who saw everything Walter Muller? Because Saul says later, Walter saw everything there was to see in me everything that was mad and bad and sad. He opens up to Walter. He makes himself vulnerable to Walter Muller, to um, the, the very man who's going to be writing up some kind of file on, on Saul. So I'm looking at how uh, the state sees Saul and the way Saul sees the state and the way that uh, Walter, who's working for the state, uh, has to kind of report back on someone he really, really desires and finds beautiful. Um, so when Saul says, his eyes were on me all the time, has a kind of double meaning. You know, Saul was, he was obsessed with the Stasi and, and par a little paranoid, but also it's Certainly real. A lot paranoid, yeah. <laughs> but it's also real. Yeah. And so I was thinking about sort of this idea about informants and being watched. And if Saul, especially because it's in first person, if he was almost like an informant on his own life, but he couldn't quite get the facts straight. Or if he That's so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of the things that it made me think about was on the concrete way because Saul was so taken with Walter. And I think when they had sex, he felt free in a way that he'd never felt before to be himself. But one of the central questions for me was what happens when you can't have the love that you want? It's really important the way that Walter and uh, Saul meet because Saul is limping when um, they first meet at the railway station in East Berlin. And uh, he, he, he's very attracted to Walter, and he doesn't want to appear to be like a guy who, who, who's a bit slow and he's a bit... He, he finds himself so tearful. Um, he's thinking about the death of his mother 
and all of that. And Walter is really sort of understanding. He He's a, a big muscular guy and he just says, he just walks, but he doesn't go on ahead, you know, he just walks in, in pace with Saul. And they sit on a step as the sun goes down over the bullet-wounded buildings of East Berlin. And he says, you rest. He takes out a newspaper and they talk. So, you know, I think that Saul has made himself vulnerable in a way to, to Walter, which he never did to Jennifer Moreau, who's also the other kind of main lover in his life. So in a way, he sort of falls in love with Walter more than Walter does with him. So it's the first time, as he says, that he, he, he wants to not detach from someone. You know that thing where you fall in love and you think, I mustn't, um, that this is, this is um, soul speaking. Love will sort of lift off this mask that I live behind. Um, so I dare not take it off. Um, but with Walter, he does. It's interesting that he does that in, in, in an authoritarian regime where he's being watched and That's paranoid right. and in a whole different reality. And one of the things that I think defines a lot of your characters, and it might be just how we live our lives as humans because it's inevitable or it might be necessary for fiction is the amount of loss that people have. And I don't know if they're defined by their loss, but that, for instance, Saul lost his mom at 12. And when he left East Germany, he lost some of the things he found there. Well, if there was a character with no problems, there'd be nothing to write about. I, I think we are all the sum of our losses. And and the way that we process them is is really interesting. There are heightened feelings in my books. There's a sort of accumulation of of emotion. Although uh, one of my subjects as a writer is not really feeling things, but not being able to feel things. Um, I'm very interested in that dynamic because, um, you know, feeling things are supposed to be so good for us, but actually um, feelings are very overwhelming, and so you can process things slowly. You don't have to all be kind of emotionally literate um, <clears throat> and articulate, and, um, you know, our desires are not always coherent, and our feelings aren't coherent, and our relations with each other aren't always coherent. So novels have a space to to look at that, to give it an give it an airing. Um, I can't bear anything bossy in books or anything that um, tells me what to think and tells me what to feel. Um, I don't like grand narrators, wise narrators, who then also pretend to be a bit buffoon-like, can't stand them. Um, so as in Hot Milk and in in The Man Who Saw Everything, I have quite sort of fragile narrators, strong on a Tuesday, vulnerable on a Wednesday. That's what we're all like in life. So I don't set up this grand voice to lead and steer us through the story or anything like that. You'll know that in Hot Milk, the uh, narrator is Sophia. She's 25. She feels very lost in life. And she I, I put her in the 
Spanish desert in a coastal village where the stars are bright and crazed, those big desert skies, and under which she feels much smaller, you know. And um, her task in life is to become bolder, to find out what she wants and what she feels and, and what she desires. So novels are a good place to go on that kind of adventure. How do you moderate that sensibility, like in the cost of living, which is so personal? The cost of living is, uh, I've called that a living autobiography. I think in America, it's described as a working autobiography. Living because autobiographies are usually written at the end of our life, when we're supposed to be wise and we're looking back with hindsight. Um, but I thought, why not write them really rubbed up in the present of life? And you're not so wise. So I had to find a first-person voice for a narrator that was very like myself, but not quite like myself, because, you know, this isn't a confession. This is a work of art. And the thing about a work of art is that some things are concealed and some things are revealed, and we work out just like a fiction, and we work out how to give um, information at the right time and how to develop a, um, an argument and unfold it through time. There we go, time again. How to pick up on the, on the very small things, like um, when the narrator's mother dies. There's quite a lot about the ice lollies. The narrator, who is myself, has to source to feed her because it's the only thing that she can eat. So I give a lot of attention to ice lollies. Um, but that's because uh, those lollies function as a way of um, sort of describing a relationship of care, of regret, of things going right, things going wrong. So guess in the memoir, the challenge was to find a voice that was formal but intimate. Very early on, one of the things you said that really stuck with me that makes me think a little bit about fiction, too, in terms of a journey story, but you said, if we don't believe in the future we are planning, and then I have some ellipsis, that a tempest might bring us closer to how we want to be in the world. Yeah. And you begin this book after a divorce. But can you talk about separation. writing that? Yes. So um, I think my point is that we sort of avoid the tempest that is there anyway, the storm there when a marriage is going wrong. You kind of, it's one of those things you don't want to know, but you know anyway. And so when the storm actually happens and there is that chaos of the tempest, which is written in a very particular way in The Cost of Living. Um, things sort of become clearer. You know what you want and you know what you don't want. And, and, and um, so chaos can bring us closer to the things that we want or the, or the future that would be better for us. Well, what's interesting is kind of on the flip side, back to Saul, is that he is so concerned with his journey. That's one of uh, the characteristics of him as as a main character is that he is he doesn't do well thinking about other people's needs. He's a bit careless, isn't he? 
And yeah. that that's what kind of Jennifer is saying that she could she was a photographer. This was his first girlfriend that she could only reach him in photos. And then when he sees himself reflected back to himself, I don't know if he could really see the full fullness of him as others saw him. His flaws and his his well, positive. He's a complicated character, isn't he? So uh, one of the things that we know about writing is that you know. We, we have to be able to hold two contradictory thoughts at the same time. You do and I do. And so do our characters in, in, in our fictions. So um, that makes things complicated. Then let's add three contradictory thoughts. So you can be loving. You can be controlling. Uh, you can be vulnerable. So let's put all that into the mix. So... Uh, so, so writing really, writing fiction or any kind of writing is about uh, honoring that sort of complexity because when we say, oh yeah, he's on a journey, it's almost as if we don't really know what that means anymore, right? Like what journey? How? We, we, we're really talking, really talking about giving our characters as many dimensions as we have. Uh, why, why wouldn't, why would a fictional character have less? So we're making the fiction as, as complicated, as dirty, as, as, as um, mysterious, as, as everything that 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 life is. My books are never going to iron out the illogical or f more fragile ways that we. Or, or more incoherent ways that we all experience every day. So what I mean by that is you walk out your apartment, you slam the door, right? Are you walking kind of to the subway and you think, why did I slam that door? What happened there? It's not like you have to, in a fiction, completely understand why you slammed that door. I, I want to go back to something you said in the beginning, and then we'll get to the last five yeah. questions, which is, um, you know, you don't want to lay it all out for the reader. So is there something beautiful in not being able to make sense of, of art completely? We all are wired to make sense. And um, I think it would be very mean to, uh, to make nonsense um, just to torment someone, right? But all art... Um, has something hidden in it and it also makes something visible that was invisible so when you look at um, say a Rothko painting do you go oh uh, I don't understand it I just don't understand it or do you just go well why don't I just let myself enter the mood of this piece of art maybe I can find myself in it Maybe I can't. I mean, uh, <laughs> is it Francis Bacon? He said, he, I, I think he's, he, there was some terrible review of his Screaming Popes or one of his great masterpieces. And he said, oh, don't be frightened. It's only a painting. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? I really love the novel The Lover by Marguerite Dura. Because the prose is so sculpted and the surface of that book is uh, so light and yet her subject is, is, is 
has a real depth charge. I love the way she plays around with time. Uh, so it starts with her older in Paris, for example, and she's looking in the mirror. And she's thinking, uh, um, I was always old, even when I was even when I was a teenager. And the next thing is, there's a space on the page, and then we are in Saigon on a ferry. She says, it's, the, the line is something like, you know, she's, she's crossing the Mekong River on a ferry. She's 15. And we're there. Bang. We don't read about her buying a ticket for the ferry. We don't read, read about her, her luggage. We don't read any exchange about the weather. Um, she's just gone from Paris to Saigon very, very quickly. So that takes real skill, actually. Dura could just spin time like a physicist. We do learn what she's wearing. She's wearing, uh, she's wearing a trilby hat and she's wearing gold lame sandals. And someone is looking at her on the ferry and he's a Chinese banker. And bang, we're into the story of this young woman and this, this financier. So she, I think, Marguerite Durat, I think she teaches us almost everything about fiction we would want to learn. Can you read something you wrote that was maybe tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Yeah. When I was writing The Man Who Saw Everything, I always had a sort of prologue, a bit like a, a trailer to begin the book. And uh, here is uh, the beginning that I discarded in the end. Uh, this is Saul speaking. I saw him in a mirror standing under a tree on the Abbey Road. He holds a hawk with his left hand. I can feel his rage, but he can't feel mine. He says, you need to plaster over the crack, son. He makes a movement with his right hand, first a circle and then up and down as if he is plastering a wall. He told me in the mirror, Saul, you are not a serious man. I said to the man in the mirror, you are not me, and I have never been a serious man when it comes to you. So the man with the hawk on his left hand is Saul's father. And his father was a plum, was a plasterer, and the hawk is a tool for plastering. But I quite like the, the double meaning of it. And Saul is in this kind of Oedipal rage with his father and his father with him for most of his life until the end of the book. So I thought, oh yeah, I'll start it with uh, Saul and his dad. That didn't feel right. Then I thought, no, I'm going to start it with uh, um, Jennifer and Saul, because they can argue for 30 years, right? Why why argue for any less? And uh, so then I, I this was a draft, Saul speaking. I saw her standing on a ladder age 23 and age 51. She said, I loved the way you touched me in the morning. But by the time the afternoon slipped in, you were already looking for someone else. And I no longer regarded you as a serious man. 
That went, but I kept the argument between Saul and Jennifer, and that changed to the opening, uh, which goes like this. This is the first page of the, the novel. It's like this, Saul Adler. When I was 23, I loved the way you touched me, but when the afternoon slipped in, you were already looking for someone else. No, it's like this, Jennifer Moreau. I loved you every day and every night, but you were scared of my love, and I was scared of my love, too. No, she said. I was scared of your envy, which was bigger than your love. Attention, Saul Adler, attention. Look to the left and to the right, cross the road, and get to the other side. Where do you write? I write in a dark, dusty shed under an apple tree. It's got four windows. Squirrels scamper down the tree, and I have um, a gas heater and a flask of tea to hand. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I go for a swim, um, either in the ponds that run from the River Fleet into Hampstead Heath, or I go uh, to my gym. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I never show a first uh, draft of a novel to anyone literary. I usually give it to somebody in film who works on the production side of things. So visual storytellers really have their eye on the story and um, they give me very good advice. How have you dealt with rejection? Get up from the floor, dust yourself off, go for a swim. Very important to dive in and not go down the stairs. And what is your favorite word? Eyelash. Thank you so much. I so appreciate your time. Thank you. Good to talk to you. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Deborah Levy, author of The Man Who Saw Everything. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Sophie McIntosh, author of the novel The Water Cure, a dystopian feminist book. You can find the entire archive of interviews on my website at firstdraftwriters.com. You can follow First Draft Writers on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and transcripts. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up on the next few episodes are interviews with Walter Mosley, David Quammen, Adrian Brodeur, and Jeannie Venasco. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.